I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. Hello and welcome to another episode of Opposition Cast. And as you'll have gathered from that introduction, we are focusing in this episode once again on American politics. And we're 10 days into the new administration of President Joe Biden and his new vice president, Kamala Harris, whose own historic election has received almost as much attention. We're also into a new political dynamic in Washington, with the Democrats holding not only the White House, but also retaining control of the House of Representatives. And after the two Senate runoff elections in Georgia earlier in January, also having a narrow grip on the Senate, thereby giving them greater control over the political agenda and more chance of passing legislation. But there is a shadow that hangs over the new administration, and that is, of course, the legacy of the former president, Donald Trump. And whilst Trump himself may have jetted off to Florida on the morning of the inauguration, breaking the tradition that the outgoing president normally welcomes their successor into the White House and attends their inauguration, he won't be absent from the political scene for very long. Not least because he will be facing a trial in the Senate following his unprecedented second impeachment by the House of Representatives for inciting a riot and insurrection against the US Congress and the invasion by an armed mob of the Capitol building itself. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women and we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them because you'll never take back our country with weakness you have to show strength and you have to be strong and we fight we fight like hell and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Just listening back to that, knowing what happened later on that day after that crowd did indeed head down to the Capitol, really is quite disturbing for a sitting president to encourage and incite an insurrection against the Congress as it tried to certify the results of a free and fair election is something that raises profound questions about the stability of American democracy. And that will be something that I'll be discussing later on in this podcast with a colleague of mine from King's College London, Professor Sarah Birch, whose research includes the topic of electoral violence, mainly focused on developing democracies. But I talked to her about some of the more worrying parallels that we now see in the United States and other Western democracies. But before that, I caught up with my friend Chris Brennan, in Pennsylvania. And Chris, you might remember from our conversation on the podcast before the presidential election, is a lifelong Republican who nevertheless decided that Donald Trump was unfit for the presidency and needed to be opposed. And we had an interesting discussion about the phenomenon of opposing uh, an individual from within their own party. And that's an issue which remains uh, a big challenge for the Republicans in the aftermath of the Trump presidency, with uh, certainly his supporters holding great sway over the party as it currently stands. So without any further ado, let's listen to that interview, which took place uh, about a week ago 
just in the few days after the inauguration. Last time we spoke was, I think, about a week before election day. And uh, we were speculating on both on the election result, but also what might transpire um, were he to to lose. And um, and I, I think that, that we probably underplayed the extent to which his uh, um, his character would not uh, allow him to concede defeat. I mean, were you surprised? I mean, obviously, you must have been delighted, particularly um, the fact that you were campaigning in Pennsylvania that uh, t- turned out to be the, the absolute key state. You must have been delighted, but were you surprised by his reaction? No. Uh, well, first answer, yes, delighted, extremely delighted. And as as a Republican conservative, a conservative Republican, it was very odd to ha- you know me to be that excited uh, for a Democrat to win not only Pennsylvania, but nationally. But, you know, I I wasn't surprised at his reaction. And it's sort of why a lot of us really wanted a much bigger and clearer win. I mean, first, let's say, you know, the the new president won um, as big of a win as Trump claimed to have gotten four years ago, um, which was still, you know, not as big as Trump would have had you expect. Uh, And again, you know, if you tinker with... Uh, the margins in a lot of these states, you could very easily see how Hillary Clinton could have won four years ago, and you could very easily see how Trump could have won re-election. The thing I was most surprised with, honestly, was that margin. I, I want to say that the popular vote margin was about four points, um, and the electoral college margin was by 306. But um, yeah, but I mean, you know, uh, some of those states were a lot closer than um, we would have liked, certainly. Um, but do you think that the, the narrative um, was was unhelpful? Because, I mean, this was widely predicted beforehand that the, because of the, the mass postal voting and the demographic of those who were, were voting by post compared to, to those who are more likely to vote on the day, everyone was expecting there to be, um, or at least b- before the, the election, we were being told, well, you know, it could be something that will be uh, only become clear within a few days as those accounted. Um, mm-hmm. There was uh, a lot of uh, shenanigans uh, with the refusal to count postal votes in advance, things like that. Yep. Um, but we were aware of all of those things. And yet I, I felt that the the media coverage really didn't help. And it actually boosted Trump to, to a degree because I don't think people were really told in, in sufficient, with sufficient clarity that uh, this will change because the votes haven't yet been counted. Do, do you think that that was something which really helped him? Because we had a narrative where, yes, on 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 a lot of the vote tallies on on the night, he was looking to be ahead narrowly on on in some of those states, and then we but we knew that he would fall further behind as as votes were counted, and clearly he knew that as well. Yeah. Do you think the media narrative really didn't help? I don't think it did. I think in some cases they, you know, in the fine print, a lot of these uh, pundits were mentioning that, but I don't think it was it was strong enough. Um, it's a strong enough narrative in the weeks and months leading up. Now, Trump, on the other hand, knew exactly what he was going up against. And so he started laying the groundwork, you know, before the summer that, you know, if I if I don't win this, it's rigged. And here's why it's going to be rigged, because all the you know, all these votes are going to magically appear at the end. Well, yeah, because there's a pandemic and, you know, 60% of the country was voting by mail and it takes, and by the way, because 
of this uh, definitely coordinated concerted effort by Trump and his allies to slow down the counting so they would have this narrative. I mean, they, they knew exactly what they were doing. And I, I, I just feel like the, the Democrats, on the other hand, just thought, well, we're going to win so big that it's not going to matter. And we'll all know on the night or maybe the next morning. I remember James Carville, who's my old nemesis from the 1990s, um, you know, saying, oh, we're going to know. We're going to know at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock on election night. And that was giving a lot of people a lot of false optimism. But, but you know, the Trump people, they knew. And, and again, in the state, I could speak pen, to Pennsylvania because I, I'm here and I'm watching it closely. The Republicans in the legislature specifically did not allow same day or, or early counting. So if you notice, like when you watched Florida or Ohio, the first batch came in, it was almost the reverse of what we saw nationally, where the early vote was counted. So, you know, Biden had a big lead in Ohio and Florida that then started to shrink and in, in, in both cases shift. Um, we could have seen that in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in a, a Wisconsin, but they all had were controlled by Republican legislatures. So they were, they were just, they fought with the governors on that. And so therefore they weren't able to count those votes. Mm. Um, it, it's, it, it's really um, underlines the fact that the sort of the narrative really matters. Um, as you say, if it had been the other way around, if those early votes had been counted first, then we would have had um, a very different situation. Um, the narrative yep. overnight would have been much, much different. And then it would have been much harder for him to to stand in. I think, did he stand in the East Room and make that that, that, that statement on the night? Yeah. Um, and, um, and and say, we, you know, we won this election. Mm. Um how stop counting the votes stop counting because i've won and i mean yeah can you imagine doing i know because as you know i've spent a a, a a a long week's night in um in eltham counting uh votes <laughs> one year and yeah can you imagine getting through half of the count and saying no oh, we're done we got it i, I can mean, well I can, I can well imagine for, for for listeners who are not aware i um in my um my other life i am a um a local politician and, and counselor in in, in Eltham. And yes, there, there are certain polling districts where um, once those box counts are done, I would quite happily say, well, you know, if we can, <laughs> if we can take that as the result, I'll, I'll happily take that. But that's not how it works. And um, I think it's another sign, perhaps, isn't it, that this is, you know, one of Trump's great appeals to his base was that I'm not a politician, I'm not a normal politician. Well, you know, any politician who, who's been through a campaign knows that these things happen. And well, I think we can say that he probably knew these as, as well. Certainly his, his people knew this. Um, but I wonder to some degree whether what he was being told by sycophants was, well, of course, you're going to win, Mr. President. Of course, you're going to win. Everyone loves you. And, um, and so on the night, if you're, if you're really genuinely not familiar with how an election works, particularly in these very different circumstances, um, why that would appear strange to you? Where are these votes coming from? And, you know, the refusal to sort of understand what's actually happening here you know this this perhaps un underlines again the fact that this is someone who just not only doesn't accept democratic norms and doesn't accept political reality but also isn't familiar with the system yeah yeah i think you're 100 percent right i i do think though i i i think he knew exactly what he was getting into i i think i look i think part of it was he does have the sycophants that surround him. He was going to those rallies with tens of thousands of people. And I think that does tend to self-inflate your, your own expectations of where you're going. I don't remember 1972, but there's stories from 1972 where George McGovern, who was the Democratic nominee, had 
you know, tens of thousands of people at rallies. He had rock stars at his rallies, like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, James Taylor, Carol King. Um, he had, you know, movie stars like Warren Beatty and, you know, all these people at his rallies and he carried one state, you know, that's not indicative of, uh, of success. Same thing with Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis. These were all people who lost in landslides, but had very, you know, the people that supported them really, really supported them and came out in all these rallies. So I, I, I'm old enough to remember those and know that rallies are not indicative of, of, of votes. I mean, you know, again, the vote of, um, of a person who's going to stand in a line for four hours to get into a Trump rally, then sit into a Trump rally, sit at a Trump rally for four hours. His vote counts just as much as mine, who would not go to a Biden rally uh, and would, you know, is going to stay home and be boring and watch television. Uh, our votes count exactly the same. And so, you know, I think that was something with the Trump people. You keep hearing even now, they'll say, oh, he had all these rallies and you know, tens of thousands of people and Biden, you know, is in his basement. How could, you know, how, how could Biden win? How could he get more votes? Well, you know, a vote is a vote is a vote. I mean, just because, you know, one side is a little more passionate doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, again, in his narrower base, yes, I would definitely say that the average Trump voter is much more passionate about Donald Trump than the average Biden voter. But what they fail to realize is politics isn't just about love. It's about, you know, opposition. Uh, not to give a little plug here, but you know it is about opposition. And when you're opposed to somebody, sometimes it's not so much the person you're for; it's what you're opposed to. And so I think that's what what they they fail to realize. Yes, and the electoral system doesn't recognize the um, the the level of passion that goes into a, a vote. It's just the decision about whether to vote or or not. Yeah. Um, and, and we've had similar examples in UK politics where I think this is the sort of the echo chamber, isn't it? This is where people who, you know, but there were so many people at the rallies. Um, and, you know, certainly there's a famous story in the 1980s of uh, the Labour Party where a politician, I think it was Michael Foote, it, I, I may be doing him a disservice, sort of said, but the, but the people at the rallies were so enthusiastic. And it's like, well, they were at your rally, so they were going to be enthusiastic. Yeah. Um, exactly. And similarly, I think we've seen recently in UK politics um, with, you know, the Jeremy Corbyn factor, those people who are passionate supporters of Jeremy Corbyn simply could not understand how he could have done so badly in 2019, because where they were, everyone was saying the same thing and reinforcing their own views. And I think this this does get exacerbated by this sort of um, echo chamber um, that, we're, that we're seeing increasingly. But but then in the aftermath, um, we know that he made that that you know statement in the east room where he said we did win this election and and so on this is a fraud on the american public this is an embarrassment to our country we were getting ready to win this election frankly we did win this election and then in the the weeks afterwards um you know after the declaration on the saturday everyone waiting for some kind of concession and, and it just didn't come um Without getting too psychoanalytical about it, you know, how much of this was, do we think, just to do with his character as somebody who simply could not accept publicly that he had lost? And how much of it was sort of, uh, as, as you said, that he knew exactly what he was doing? He thought there was a chance that he could put this into doubt. I think it's both. And I again, I don't think it helped that the election was closer than anticipated. I think if he had, you know, if you look at the last few polls 
uh, certainly with the national vote, uh, popular vote, for those of you, and I'm sure your listeners know that by now, gosh, uh, you know, the American electoral system and how that works. And, hmm. you know, you could you could win California by, you know, six million votes. But, you know, if you could lose other states and, and or win other states, it doesn't matter. But nevertheless, there is usually a correlation between if you win big enough, states tend to, to, to fall in line, like a swing, uh, you would say, in, in, in Britain, you know, if a certain, you know, if the swing goes one way, there's a certain expected seats that are going to fall into one party's uh, lap one way or the other. And I think if Biden had won by 10 points, like the last polls were saying, and the electoral count, let's say Florida flipped, let's say Ohio flipped. Uh, even Texas, people were thinking Texas mm, was, yes, was going to be a lot closer. Yeah, then it would have been a lot tougher. For I mean, Trump, I think no matter what, was going to claim everything was rigged and the system was against him. But it, it would have been a lot harder for his supporters to carry that water. And I think, you know, the third of his base, which is extremely, you know, will literally do anything as very sadly, we saw two weeks ago, we'll do anything he asks. You know, they wouldn't have accepted it. But the other majority, you know, the, the, the two thirds of the Republican Party would have had a very hard time believing that. Mm. And it would have been easier for people like me to then turn around and say, OK, you know, this is what Trumpism has gotten us. But because it was a four point national win and, a, you know, 306 electoral votes and a lot of those states were tended to be close, it just gives that aura of mystery and conspiracy, all things like people like you and I are not fans of, it, it just kind of adds fuel to the fire. So it was a perfect narrative for him, unfortunately. Yeah. And you mentioned the events of two weeks ago. I mean, um, I, I can't imagine what you as a uh, as an American citizen must have thought of, of those, those sites that we saw uh, of the Capitol being invaded by uh, a mob. But what it did give us finally was the the the, the Republican leadership in both houses pretty much breaking with Trump. Yeah. I mean, how depressing is it to you? It's a very leading question, but how depressing is it <laughs> that it that it took an armed insurrection at the Capitol, yeah. literally at their door, before these um Republican Trump allies finally yeah. broke with him? As my dad used to say, Nigel, better late than never. But but you know, yeah, it, it only took, you know, it only took uh, an armed insurrection uh, attempt at the Capitol to make people be outraged. I think a lot of it with, with Leader McConnell, you know, a story that now is kind of forgotten, which is insane because it would have been one of the big stories leading up to the inauguration, was the special elections in Georgia that, mm. um, or the runoffs, I should say more, more uh, specifically, that flipped the Senate. And I think because, and again, we'll go back another day to something that normally would be a huge story, was Donald Trump making that hour-long phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State at saying to him, in no uncertain terms, I want you to find me 11,000 votes. We have to overturn this. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, So tell me... Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And that would have been a huge story. It was in Georgia for two days. A lot of analysts think that that was what flipped those two seats, which which flipped very narrowly. They were both one was mm. a point, one was two points. Um, you and I both know from following elections. I mean, it could be, you know, victory has a thousand fathers. It could have been a million things, but. 
I don't think that helped. I think, you know, I think we could all agree there. And from what I've heard from my sources down there in the Hill uh, in Washington is that that was McConnell just lost his mind because that's what cost him his job. That's what cost him his leadership in the Senate. And so, you know, maybe he would have broken with Trump on other things. Um, but once the insurrection happened, it made it so much easier for him because he thought, you know, I'm the minority leader. It's this guy's fault that I'm the minority leader. And what do I have to lose? I, he himself just got reelected to the Senate this past November by, you know, a, a wide majority. And he's got now a six year term. So as you and I both know, uh, you know, four years is like, or six years is an eternity in politics, meaning there's no electoral uh, backlash mm. where the Republicans in the House are all, most of them have primaries in one year. Yeah. So that's why I think you saw the level of insanity with the, the vast majority of the Republicans in the House voting to contest these um, electors that were coming in. And and also that only 10 of them voted for impeachment after what had happened. Mm. Because again, they still have that fear that Trump's going to magically tweet. Yes. And that's something which I'm going to talk to our, our next guest about in terms of uh, violence in, in elections and normally we expect to be talking about that in the, the context of uh, countries with uh, developing democracies or, um, mm. or or with a troublesome recent history but we, we, we can see the um, the violence at the capital as being something which is unprecedented and, and, and horrific but also it does give an edge to that fear doesn't it that you know yeah. th there are people who are prepared to take extreme action in support of um, of Donald Trump, but also against the government. I mean, this is yeah. is literally what we're talking about in terms of um, of uh, opposition spilling over into a sort of armed uh, revolution, in, in a sense. And and that sort of gives a, an element of, um, of 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 credence to the fact that these these people are genuinely fearful of the consequences for themselves of opposing um, yeah. what we might call, I suppose, the sort of Trumpism within um, the Republican Party. Does that make it um, harder, do you think, to, to purge Trump from the Republican Party? I mean, there are now, well, we say there are, there are four years, but there's not really four years. There's, you know, until we start the, the primary season um, um, for the next presidential election and whoever is going to be the, the nominee there, um, it's only a, really a few years away until we start to see yeah. people gearing up for that. And as you say, of course, there are House elections every two years. In terms of you as a Republican, you must have been looking forward to being able to go back to your more traditional perspective of, of democratically opposing a, a democratic president and, um, yeah. and supporting the Republican Party. How confident are you that we are going to see a, a change and reversion um, in the Republican Party to some degree of democratic norms? Um, I think, you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, sometimes it's hard to put it back in. And I think that you're going to have people spurred on by you know the talk show hosts and the right-wing uh, media echo chamber in america yeah i mean i think you're going to see the ted cruises and the josh hollies and a lot of these folks you know no matter what biden does they're gonna you know it's going to be the worst bill ever it's going to be the largest tax increase ever it's going to be the the most left-wing program i mean they're gonna you know all this rhetoric which by the way you know normally happens i mean i you know I remember in the early days of the Clinton administration, <clears throat> you know, a lot of mainstream establishment Republicans, you know, saying a lot of the, you know, that uh, Clinton's budgets passed, you know, this will be the worst economy in history. And as we know, the economy in the 90s 
at least in the United States, was pretty strong. So there is a little bit of rhetoric, which we expect, and you have that when, when you're in opposition. And it is tougher, especially in the United States, for the opposition to coalesce behind. You know, I know it's, it's different in Britain and in other countries um, with a parliamentary form because you have a, a permanent opposition. You know, you have, a, you have a leader and you have shadow cabinets and things. But in America, you know, again, nobody knows who's speaking for the Republican Party. Number one, because there isn't, an obvious nominee for a few years. And also even in our system in the House and Senate, there are two. There's a House minority leader and a Senate minority leader. And sometimes they can be opposed to each other on certain things. So I I think a a, a lot of the more establishment Republicans will try to at least forge a decent relationship with President Biden because a lot of them had relationships with him. Uh, They had served with him for years. They know him to be a man of his word and he's a good deal maker. But there are going to be a lot of politically ambitious Republicans in the Senate that are going to be obstructionists no matter what. They're all of a sudden going to love fighting deficits again, which they conveniently forgot about for four years. And hmm. the last president spent more than any president you know, before in history. Uh, but suddenly the Republicans will all of a sudden become very fiscally conservative. They're all of a sudden going to become very hawkish on things that they had been very dovish on. But that's just the nature of, you know, some of these folks. It's just they're very politically, um, you know, ambitious and they'll do whatever to, to rile their base up. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be seen the forces of uh, pragmatism and reason and h- how they succeed. It looks like right now the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, is giving a lot of indications that he would vote for an impeachment to get past the Trump era because Part of the reason for that is they could essentially ban him from Donald Trump from holding office again. And I think probably 80 percent, 90 percent of the Republicans in in the House and the Senate would love that, primarily because then most of them will be able to run in 2024. (laughs) I think as much as they, you know, have this fealty to Donald Trump, they realize if he could run again, he would block them all for running. And let's face it, they're all there for ambition and for themselves. It's the prime reason. Um, And so you know, they would, they would, you know, howl at the moon and they would say, this is the worst thing ever, but then they would all line up to run and to try to get, claim his mantle. So <laughs> it's, it's always a happy coincidence where uh, constitutional obligation meets with personal ambition, isn't it? And just finally, what do you think about the prospects for the impeachment? It's, uh, th- there's always some confusion, I, I find, in, in the terminology, uh, although we are all becoming experts um, in it. When people talk about a president being impeached, uh, a lot of people not familiar with it think, oh, well, that's it then. And of course, yeah. we know that it's a two-stage process with the impeachment in the House and then the trial in the Senate. And uh, he is now the, the only president to have been impeached twice um, by the House. But we still have the, the, the trial to come of you know, uniquely an ex-president. As you say, there is a very clear reason for wanting to do that, but it does require 16 or 17 senators to break ranks on the Republican side to meet yeah. the two-thirds majority. What are the prospects of that? And do you think that it was a misguided action by Speaker Pelosi, mainly, to uh, to go for impeachment when there probably would have been, I would suggest, wider support for a, a censure motion, which wouldn't have had that effect? Yeah, a censure motion or uh, to get even more in the weeds, as we say here in America, there, there is a in, in our 14th Amendment, which was done after the American Civil War, which essentially what most people think of the 14th Amendment was that it, it, it enabled uh, African-Americans were, were citizens of the United States. So anyone living in the United States was a citizen. If 
Um, but there's another section, I believe it's section four, which says any, and again, remember this was done right after the civil war, which had literally been an armed insurrection against the United States government, was that anyone who had participated in any insurrection, so it didn't say specifically in that 1861 to 65 period, but anyone who takes up arms against the United States government is, uh, or encourages it, is forbidden to hold office. So that, that, was, that was primarily directed towards Democratic, Southern Democrats who had held office uh, before the war, who had, who had kind of aided and abetted their comrades uh, in their home states when they seceded, okay? So some people thought, and there were some editorials and uh, opinion pages that were suggesting that, you know, we could just invoke that 14th, you know, section four of the 14th Amendment kind of gets a little more in the weeds. I think when they were just trying to, everybody was so upset at that time, fevers were so high. You know, remember Nancy Pelosi has a very narrow, uh, tenuous hold on her base as well. And I think the vast majority of her members wanted impeachment. Time will tell and history will tell what the right move would have been, but something clearly had to have been done because you can't let this sort of behavior off the hook. You know, I, I think if they had done censure, there would have been <clears throat> a lot of Republicans that would have voted for it. But on the other hand, censure is extre- is is basically toothless. There's no just yeah, you're censured. Yeah. Donald Trump, as we know, has no shame, so he wouldn't care. It doesn't yes. hold anything. Impeachment, he will lose his pension. He will lose, you know, he'll lose Secret Service protection, uh, and then he could possibly be barred from holding office. Yes. Yeah, and and what do you think? Just quickly, what what do you think of the prospects of that? I think right now, I think you're either going to have five Republicans or 25 Republicans, meaning, you know, you're going to just have the the Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski types that have always sort of been opposed to Trump, or McConnell's going to kind of open the floodgates and a lot of Republicans who want to put this past will, will, will vote. So you'll have maybe half of the Republican caucus which is about, you know, when Joe McCarthy was censured, which was another big vote in our history about 65 years ago, uh, it was the same thing. You had half the Republicans in the Senate. You know, nobody wants to be that, you know, 51st or 67th vote. So if you just kind of open it up wide and it's 70, the, the final vote is 75-25, let's say, nobody can sing, can be singled out as, oh, it was, you know, you were that final vote that, that did it. So my prediction is it's either going to be five or 25. Great. Well, we shall see. I think um, many will want to return to a a, a quieter form of politics. And so um, uh, thanks for, very much for, for talking to us again. I'm sure we'll speak again as um, the new administration uh, encounters its own opposition. Absolutely. Anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you again. Chris Brennan there in Pennsylvania, celebrating the end of the Trump era, but steeling himself for a few more years of opposition within the Republican Party to Trump and his followers. And my next guest is a colleague of mine at King's College London. It's Professor Sarah Birch, who is Professor of Political Science, and she was born in the United States but has lived in the United Kingdom for many years. And her research focuses mainly on the empirical study of political ethics, including electoral integrity, ethical reasoning in politics, and perceptions of um, corruption. She's also done a lot of work recently on the issue of electoral violence, something which has become sadly all too relevant, it seems, in recent years in Western democracies, including the United States. And I began by asking her what it was about those topics that she felt had been under-researched, perhaps, in 
political science? There are a number of interesting aspects of elections that have only started to be researched extensively recently, largely, I think, uh, as a consequence of academics who study elections going out to other parts of the world as election observers and so forth. And they've started to apply some of the standards that are used to observe elections in other parts of the world to their own countries. And they found that their own countries actually don't always measure up that well, according to some of these standards. And that's what's happened recently in the United States. Some people who have been involved in helping to design electoral institutions in other parts of the world have turned the, those analytic tools to US politics. And it's been a while, for a while now, for I would say about 10 or 15 years now, there's been a, a resurgence of interest in the study of the quality of elections, electoral manipulation, electoral integrity, and electoral violence in the US context. Although electoral violence has really become an issue only, I would say, in this um, in, in the last few years. Uh, there um, have been some episodes of electoral violence at previous midterm elections um, in particular, and of course there was quite a considerable fear that there would be extensive electoral violence at the time of the recent presidential election, and we saw um, at the, the confirmation hearing at the Capitol indeed that happened. Mm. And um, most of your work um, is, I think uh, it's fair to say, has, has focused on um, developing democracies. And uh, as you say, it's only fairly recently that people have uh, taken those lessons back and applied them to the United States and to, to more developed um, democracies. Um, the other part of it is, is as you mentioned, was, um, is um, corruption and, uh, and other forms of um, sort of irregularity. Where, where we have a regime or a, a democratic system that, that is facing those kinds of issues, what is it that um, enables them to overcome them and to stabilize? Do we have evidence about reversion to, to problematic elections? Usually we, we would consider if a country democratizes, the first election afterwards is the one that's the most important because, you know, a peaceful transition, a phrase that we've heard a lot in the last few weeks, that first peaceful transition is the really tricky one. But once that's happened, we tend to think, well, then it's probably okay. Clearly, we've seen with the United States, a couple of centuries of democracy doesn't protect you from the, the risk that perhaps that peaceful transition is not as secure. Is there evidence on on how you stabilize that? And, and is it a process which is does run the risk of reverse reversing? I think a lot of scholars are recognizing that um, the last several decades in world history have been unusual in the extent to which they have been characterized by relatively high degrees of political stability and predictability that we can we've been able to make generalizations about parts of the world such as such and such a country is an established democracy such and such a country is an authoritarian regime based on the fact that for a number of decades the similar um, political systems uh, remained in those countries however it seems that over the last I don't know 10 years or so perhaps since 2008 in particular there has been a slight breakdown of those categories authoritarian regime established democracy and we do see more of a convergence in regime types and there are elements of authoritarianism that are popping up in democracies and increasingly authoritarian regimes adopt the trappings of democracy they have parliaments they have elections they have you know multi-party systems and so forth they have human rights and um, commitments that they often don't observe and so we we were kind of seeing a breakdown in 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 these in these categories and I think it is very worrying that um, 
Uh, there are people in uh, established democracies who are trying to use some of the tricks of authoritarian leaders. Uh, however, if a country genuinely is democratic, it will be resilient to that. And we've seen that in the United States context, uh, despite uh, quite a bit of concern, and I would say ongoing concern about some of the things that the political tactics that some people are using in that country. There have been quite a lot of people who have decided, no, we really don't accept that. That's not the way the American system works. We believe in rule of law. Uh, we believe in doing things um, you know, peacefully and abiding by the, the proper systems and not politicizing administrative processes. And so we will stand by that. And you know, the majority of people have come around to that view. And I think that does indicate the resilience of an established democracy. We also see that countries, and it's not just democracies, it's countries all over the world, that they'll get a scare at a particular election. It may be you know, following a transition uh, regime change, which is a dramatic alteration. And then there will be a commitment to doing things properly, to doing things peacefully. We've seen that even in countries that are, whose elections are characterized by, by violence, like Jamaica and Tanzania. Would be a particularly violent election, then all the parties will come together, will sit down, form some kind of pact or an agreement to, yes, we're going to do things more peacefully uh, in the future. And so the next election will be much more peaceful and will be much, much better run. And then gradually, you know, things will start to deteriorate again. So you have this kind of a system punctuated by crises going up and down and up and down. Now, I'm hoping that that's not what we're observing in some of the established democracies, such as the United States or some other countries, such as, you know, Hungary, uh, that's exhibited some elements of authoritarianism as well. I'm hoping that this um, case in the United States was, was an isolated incident and that there will be reforms that will make that type of thing much more difficult uh, in future. Mm. And as somebody who I think has in the past lived in the United States, how concerning has it been over the last four years to, to see some of the analogies made between sort of authoritarian regimes and the, the Donald Trump presidency? Was that something which, um, as an expert in those genuine authoritarian systems, that you found convincing? Were those overblown or was there something in it? I have found it very concerning, and I think that there is um, there, there's a lot of truth in some of the allegations that have been made. Some people have made quite dramatic claims, such as you know, the US is, is going to become a fascist regime or a tyranny, but the reality is, you know, I study authoritarianism, the reality is that most countries in the world are somewhere in between full-blown authoritarian countries and full-blown democracies. There's no perfect democracy in the world. I think Denmark probably comes the closest, but even Denmark <laughs> has its problems. And there's no, yeah, you know, there's no country that doesn't have at least some elements of, of you know, consultation, representation, and taking account of what ordinary people think. And so, countries are all in between. Uh, and so, it's not like some countries such as the United States would suddenly go from being an established democracy to, to being a dictatorship. I mean, that just you know, doesn't happen. Uh, what's more likely is that we're going to see um, elements of uh, authoritarianism popping up in democracies. And I'm talking to some extent about the way decisions are made, but I'm also talking about the way decisions are implemented. And I think the biggest danger to democracies is on the output side. And you know, after the, the, the lawmakers have made the decision, it's the, the extent to which the decision is not implemented in an impartial manner. 
we see this in electoral administration in the United States. It's unusual in democracies in that a lot of the people who oversee electoral administration are elected officials with partisan, known partisan affiliations. Whereas in the UK, for example, we have uh, the returning officer who's often the chief executive of the local authority runs the elections. It's not a, a politician. And so the situation when you have elected officials overseeing uh, elections is is going to lead to vulnerabilities and occasionally there'll be somebody who will manipulate that that role but uh, more importantly it leads to a lack of trust especially you have a very politically polarized situation a lot of people regardless of how honest and decent that electoral official is a lot of people if they don't like the results of the election they'll they'll start to you know imagine that somehow it was the partisan affiliation of that official that delivered that result and it wasn't really a fair result and so I think there's a problem of confidence that then um, undermines acceptance of electoral results in that context. I mean, you have a lack of acceptance, then then you have the, uh, you know, the preconditions for some kind of violent reaction. Mm. And is that the the real damage that the last, well, the last year or the last few months has, has done, that regardless of how disagreeable people might have found the Trump presidency, the period since the election in which he, uh, and I suppose as well in the months leading up to it, in which he explicitly cast doubt on the um, legitimacy of the election and the electoral processes, that's something which clearly drove the uh, the movement that resulted in the, the violent action that took place at, at the Capitol from his supporters, and also various conspiracy theories that um, that we, we, we've heard of that, that, that are circulating in, uh, in those sort of fringe organisations. The, the use of the undermining of the legitimacy is something which doesn't go away with the person who's who's been stoking it how, how much of a problem is that 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 explicitly potentially a, a fairly significant portion of the electorate have been encouraged to question the the legitimacy of the electoral system that that's something which it sounds as though it's it's going to be a longer term problem i think it is going to be a longer term problem but i think it's also a problem that predates trump the United States has consistently had relatively low confidence in electoral processes, uh, surprisingly low confidence and far less confidence than uh, other established democracies such as the United Kingdom, for example. In preparing for this podcast, I dug out some, some data on this that's been uh, prepared by Harvard scholar Pippa Norris. So she's for a number of years now been studying electoral integrity and confidence in electoral processes. And she's come up with some very interesting data so her data that she presents, this is in her co-authored book, Electoral Integrity in America, it dates back to 2006. And at that point, 52% of Americans thought that elections were conducted honestly. It went down to 47% in 2008. It bounced off a bit to 59% in 2009. And then since then, it's been pretty much declining. But in 2012, for example, it was 42%. In 2013 is 39%. So this is not new. Even you know, back in 2013, which is quite a lot of time before Trump got elected, there was only 2013, 2014, 2015, those three years, there was only about two out of five Americans actually had confidence that their elections were being conducted honestly. Then it went down in 2016 to 30%. And I haven't, you know, I've heard some various opinion polls, commercial opinion polls that have suggested different figures in more recent uh, weeks and months. This is not a new phenomenon. 
Americans who have for a very long time been very skeptical of the quality of the elections and there has been a low degree of uh, losers' consent, the confidence in, that people are on the losing side of an election, confidence they have in the quality of the elections. Mm, that's that is quite concerning, and I think you mentioned a, a core concept there of, of losers' consent that um, it's it's what enables there to be a, a peaceful transition of power, but also to enable um, politics to function requires that all participants do have that that confidence in uh, the propriety of of the system if you have a, a situation in which um, there is such a low level of confidence in the fairness of uh, elections and, and of their robustness it, it does inevitably make it more likely that people will will, will take sort of extra political uh, action whether that's violence in in terms of actually taking sort of violent action or whether that is you know other forms of dissent and, and protest that that is quite corrosive as as well and in the context of this podcast and talking about uh, forms of opposition i always seem to think that the, the job of an institutionalized opposition is to sort of channel dissent into the political system if if that's not if the consent is not there and people don't believe that the political system is doing that all of that dissent has to go somewhere Yes, indeed. And the difference between this election and previous elections, and there was also a low degree of losers' consent in the United States, is this election, there was a politician who opportunistically tried to mobilise that um, sentiment for his own benefit, Donald Trump. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, and in previous elections, of course, the 2000 election um, with Al Gore was somewhat unusual because that went to the Supreme Court and there was disagreement, there still is disagreement about the outcome of the election, whether it was illegitimate. But even then, we saw a relatively small amount of you know, popular mobilization because all of the political elites, including uh, Mr. Gore himself, were prepared to accept the decisions that were made by the formal institutions. Another example of this was, you remember the independence referendum in Scotland and following Following that, there was a relatively large movement and some street protests in um, in Glasgow that got violent. But a lot of people didn't accept the outcome of that uh, referendum. Again, it was very polarised, people with very, very strong views. And um, a lot of the people who favoured independence just could not believe, um, they literally could not believe that, that, that the result really was a vote to remain in the UK because all the people they knew wanted independence. And they thought, well, the vote must have been rigged because it couldn't possibly be that that's what Scottish people really wanted. It's just not my experience of what people I know want. Now, the reason why that uh, popular protest uh, did result in some street demonstrations, the reason why it really didn't go anywhere and it died down after a little while is that the elites on both sides of the political divide accepted the result that was delivered by the electoral officials. And they say, no, we're really disappointed. The people who wanted independence, the elites said, no, we're really disappointed because we really did want to be independent from the UK, but that's not what the electoral results showed. So the difference in this election is that we had a politician, Donald Trump, in the in the US election, we had a politician, Donald Trump, who was prepared to um, question the authority of the electoral officials, virtually, as we know now, with, with virtually no justification. Uh, and he was willing to use that for personal advantage, to use that lack of losers' consent for personal advantage, was previously political elites hadn't done that. In established democracies, they virtually never do that. The political elites usually do subscribe to the principle of losers' consent, and that's what makes a country democratic. Mm. 
And you talk about the importance of elites taking that sort of leadership role in accepting the legitimacy of the system and, and the results. One of the issues that I just discussed with Chris Brennan in terms of the, the Republican Party is that there is this uh, sort of anti-elite element uh, in Trumpism um, and, and his rise was um, explicitly to position himself in opposition to the elites of the Republican Party and against Washington, as, as pretty much all presidential candidates do, but explicitly against the Republican Party's elites. And so even now we're seeing members of, of the Republican caucus in the House fearful of the Republican base, that they don't really wish to repudiate Trump to the extent that we might expect them to, because they're concerned about the implications of doing that. Um, you've got a situation there where essentially the, the, the leadership, although many of them privately, we would imagine, did accept the result um, and understood that the courts had found that there was there were no irregularities and uh, that there was no base to the, the challenge, nevertheless still voted not to certify the result and still are keeping quite an equivocal position. If the elites can't sort of challenge the you know what their their supporters are, are believing, you know, that, that's going to be quite difficult for for the system to, to sort of recover uh, if, if those people are not going to challenge that if they are going to you know for their own personal advantage are going to allow people to continue to to rail against the unfairness of the system well a lot of the republicans are now challenging that they're finding their courage of their convictions and they are rallying around and standing up for rule of law uh, and recognizing that no wrongdoing, no serious amount of wrongdoing has, has been found. For me, it points to one of the, the flaws in the American political systems, the weakness of the American political systems is the primary system that, you know, it, it made it possible for someone like Donald Trump, who probably never would have accepted by the Republican elite, it made it possible for a populist like that to come to, to power and, and, and to, to win the nomination, then subsequently to be elected president. Um, and I think it's probably incumbent on the Republican Party to rally around and recognize that someone who does not respect rule of law and does not accept rule of law is really not an appropriate person to, to, to be nominated for, for their presidential candidate and to do what they can to, to prevent that, because in the end, it's counterproductive. I mean, one of the pieces of research that I've done, comparative research, shows citizens don't believe the election is free and fair, they're less likely to vote. And so I think if, if the Republican base is being convinced that American elections are not free and fair, then that's just going to depress turnout on the part of the Repub their Republican base. So I expect a lot of next time, a lot of Republican supporters who supported Trump simply are not going to vote because they think, oh, it's all rigged. And we already saw that in Georgia and the runoff. Um, so I'm not sure the Republicans who are you know trying to appeal to that base are necessarily doing the party a service because they could just be depressing turnout uh, on the part of the, uh, you know, some sectors of that base. And potentially, if, if it's just Trump as an individual who's who's got that support, then it might not be transferable to other people who are trying to, you know, do the same thing that Trump was doing. It's not obvious that someone could just say the same things as same types of things as Trump said, and, and suddenly, you know, magic that support to, to themselves. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, that if if you were trying to undermine democracy with the objective of actually overthrowing it and um, replacing it, then this is exactly what you would have done, that you would have tried to remove people's confidence in it and depress turnouts and so on and, and, and illegitimize the elections. Um, but if, you, if you're not going to achieve that, if the system is going to endure, then as you say, it's completely counterproductive because those people then 
just don't vote. And and possibly, you know, Donald Trump created his own downfall in that regard by in the months leading up to it saying, oh, it's all going to be rigged, it's all going to be rigged. But certainly in terms of the, the way people voted, people were predominantly voting um, by by mail, were not voting for him. And the, the reason for that is he told them it was it was a corrupt system. So, uh, you know, he, possibly he's the author of his own demise. Yeah, so I think I, I haven't done research on this myself, but I'm aware of some American scholars who've done some work that showed that if he had actually encouraged his supporters to vote by mail, he could quite possibly have won because that was a strategic mistake on, on his part. But I think a big challenge that remains for all people, all political leaders and democracies, uh, including those who really do subscribe to rule of law, is how to address the issue of trust in the age of social media, um, because that's the, the big catalytic force that's enabled these groups of people to uh, rally around um, perspectives and beliefs that just are not based in fact. Um, the idea that you know the election was rigged or something that um, you know it was all looked into by experts and nothing was found but there's still an awful lot of people that seem to believe it and, and presumably that's because they're getting reinforcement of that view from social media posts and it's not just in the area of elections it's in many many domains of, of, of life and so I think that really is a, a major challenge for a democracy that we see you know far beyond the shores of the United States. So I think politicians find themselves in a very different difficult position across the world. And um, just finally, looking at the the impact of all of this um, in in recent months and years, you mentioned the the primary process as being somewhat something which really should have filtered out a candidate who didn't subscribe to democratic norms. Are there other elements of the US system that strike you as as in need of reform to, to try and to reduce some of these, uh, these, these effects and concerns? If you were sort of coming up with a, a prescription for what needs to urgently change to, to try and reduce these effects, um, what would you highlight? Well, there are certain elements of the Constitution that are, um, to a large extent, at odds with contemporary democratic norms. Uh, firstly, the electoral college system, so presidents aren't directly elected, and also the, the Senate, which gives the same representation to each state, which means, in effect, it gives disproportionate result to, to rural states that have a particular partisan complexion, so sort of a built-in partisan bias in, in the Senate and the filibuster institution, which means that... Um, you know, you need you need quite a strong representation in the Senate to have full control over it, and and you know that's easier for some part than one party than it is for the other. So, but those are things that that are built into the Constitution, and they're not going to change in the foreseeable future because it's just so difficult to get any type of constitutional reform at the current time. This just hasn't happened for a very long time. Um, I think that there are other things um, that could change and that, and that presumably will change. I think there are already moves afoot to change some of the aspects of the way elections are run. The United States system is very, very unusual and that electoral administration is uh, so devolved to the states. So there, there are relatively few electoral inst institutions that are, that are nationwide. States have huge amount of leeway to, to, to decide their own procedures um, and rules. And um, that allows for an awful lot of discretion that can be manipulated by partisan actors. Uh, and so I think if there were a more of a centralization of uh, electoral administration in the United States and a professionalization, so it wasn't uh, partisan actors who are control, in control of running elections and overseeing how elections were run, but it was civil servants who were, who were in charge of that, 
that would both improve the objective quality of elections, more important still, it would improve the popular confidence in uh, elections. And, and it would put uh, create a level playing field across the US and in, in the rules. And it would mean that there was much more sort of transparency uh, and confidence that, that those rules were, were fair. It's certainly something which um, um, we were talking to Chris Brennan just now about how if, if the postal ballots had been counted early in those um, swing states rather than at the end of the process, the narrative of the election would have been entirely different. And perhaps the uh, levels of conspiracy theories and uh, undermining it would have been more difficult to do if that had been done. So, but we know that was done for political reasons. So, so perhaps that 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 one thing of the sort of the belief in democracy being about electing everyone, uh, perhaps electing electoral officials is not a great idea. As partisan people, uh, that's really not a good idea at all. But there's so many aspects of the U.S. process. I mean, just the fact that the states in the East Coast released their results before the states in the West Coast have finished voting. Um, I mean, things like that, that, you know, you think back to European Union elections, which we used to have in the United Kingdom, you know, the, none of the, the countries would have their, vote, their elections on different days, but the results weren't released until they'd all held their elections. So, yes. you know, that there's so many aspects of, of the American system that are very much at variance with international norms. And, you know, scholars, such as I mentioned, Pibinor, she's done a lot of work on this area, but other scholars have also started to look at elections through the lens of international norms and just seeing how poor poor the US electoral system is. So lots of changes, none of them are kind of mind-blowingly uh, radical reforms to the, to the entire institution, but there's small changes just to professionalize the system to make it a fair and more transparent. Mm. Well, thanks very much for joining us and for highlighting um, that, that research as, as well. I think that the, the level of, of trust in US elections will be a, an interesting metric to to track in the next few years but thanks very much for taking the, the, the time to to join us and it's good to have a, a king's colleague on the podcast i'm absolutely delighted to be able to contribute to this podcast and i thank you very much for inviting me professor sarah birch of king's college london there and that's just about all for this episode of the podcast but before i go i just wanted to give a mention to some positive feedback that we've had from one of our listeners, uh, a very esteemed listener at that, uh, LBC presenter Ian Dale, a highly prolific podcaster in his own right, was good enough to give us a review in the column that he writes for the Reaction uh, website, where he described us uh, as making for fascinating and informative listening. And you can't say fairer than that. He also mentioned it on the For the Many podcast that he presents with Jackie Smith. Here's a quick clip. As well as recommending your appearance on the Opposition Cast podcast with Nigel Fletcher, which was very, very good. Although you gave him a bit of an exclusive, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I did. I, do you know, I knew you were going to say that. I always do that, don't I? I go on other people's yeah. podcasts and, I, and then I give away things that yeah. I haven't told you. So there you have it. Confirmation from two award-winning podcasters, no less that here on Opposition Cast we deliver exclusives from our guests. And if you haven't listened to that episode with Jackie Smith, then I highly recommend that you go back and do so. It's a really interesting discussion, and you can find out for yourself what it was that she told us. Uh, and also to return the favour, of course, I recommend uh, that you subscribe to and listen to the For The Many podcast with Ian and Jackie. Um, if you don't mind uh, the occasional bit of smutty humour with your political analysis, uh, they're currently providing that 
twice a week for your enjoyment, and uh, I'd recommend you listen to that. I'll be back with another episode of Opposition Cast before too long. Uh, If you haven't already subscribed, make sure you've done that on whichever podcast app you're using to make sure you don't miss the next episode. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Do please subscribe and listen to our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, although I, I did say that I thought his introductions were a bit ponderous and he needs to get bloody get on with it. We, we should talk. Um, LAUGHTER